chapter 5, first book in the New Testament. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So notice there's only two groups of people here, multitudes and the disciples. Then Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in case you missed that, hey, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, even before I pray, as we read that list, you can't pick and choose which ones you don't want. You have to take all of them. Father, this morning, as we turn our hearts to you and to your word, oh God, we need you to speak to us, and that your word would find good soil within our hearts that you'd bring insight and understanding to where we could grasp what your word is declaring as you settle it into our hearts and that it would grow and it would produce fruit in each one of our lives. So God, bless our time this morning, please. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Last week, we saw the crowds have been traveling and upwards to 100 miles to get to where Jesus is not only to be hearing what he's saying, but then also to be touched by him and to be healed. And so the group that has gathered to where Jesus is right now, it's quite large. Nobody really knows how big it is, but it's bigger than what we might think. And so notice how it says right here, and seeing the multitudes. Okay, so that's all of us this morning. We're the multitudes. Jesus went up on a mountain And when he was seated, it's not that he didn't want to be around the multitudes. No, he's probably already taught, already healed. He's not trying to avoid them. It simply says, without reading anything into it, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, the rabbis would sit when they would teach. And guess what the other people would do? Stand. So shall we try that today? (laughs) You stand, I sit. I guarantee you, we'll have no sleepers. Hey, catch them, they're falling. (laughs) I've done that once. I was so tired, I fell asleep while I was standing. You know, I needed to get this done, so I stood up, held my screen up there. And when Jesus was seated, his disciples came to him. In the midst of the multitudes, he travels up to the mountain and you, you see what it says, his disciples came to him. Now, please understand that this group of disciples is way larger than the four fishermen that Jesus called last week. The crowds have come, they've come to hear, they've heard, they've come to be healed, they've been healed. Some out of the many have left, some out of the many are just kind of hanging out, but some out of the many are wanting more. The, the Greek definition for disciple is a learner a student. Jesus defines what a disciple is. So hold your spot right here because we need to find out what a disciple is. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. So you're in Matthew. You're going to go Mark, Luke chapter 9. And let's find out what a disciple is. Jesus has just told his 12 men and the other disciples with them that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things, He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he's going to be killed and he's going to raise from the dead on the third day. 
Now, I'm not sure that's your basic church building seminar today, that that's what you preach. But his very next words to his disciples, after he tells them, hey, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise on the third day, it's in verse 23 in Luke chapter 9. If anyone desires to come after me, and we should, he saved us, he's offering salvation, let him deny himself. See, before I came to Jesus, life was all about me. But when I turned, life was no longer about me. It's about my new Lord. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. I think to you and I, that means being totally submitted to the word of God. For Jesus to take up his cross, that meant he needed to be totally submitted to the Father's will over his own life. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. BDD, basic definition of a disciple. Or B-A-C, born again Christian. This is it. The reason I know that this is the basic definition of a disciple is because if you go a few more chapters in Luke to chapter 14, Luke records to us again these same words of Jesus, leaves out a couple, but he adds a couple. Look at Luke 14, verse 27. And Jesus said, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my what? Cannot be my disciple. Now, for shock value, back up one verse to verse 26. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, Jesus is not teaching about hate here. But if any earthly relationship hinders you from being a disciple of Jesus, then according to the words of Jesus, you cannot be as what? Can't be, that's what it says. You have your Bible. Because see, it's God first. If I'm married, it's my spouse second. If I have kids, it's my kids third. And then, you know, ministry fourth or however it plays out. But it can't be, well, let's see, uh, now that I'm saved, I'm going to put me first and then my spouse and God third. No, it does not work that way. God has to be and stay in the number one spot. So, we all clear on what a disciple looks like? Here's the definition. Jesus tells, it what, tells us what it is. Now, just remember, a disciple is always going to be different from the multitudes. Numerous times as we read through the gospel the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus addresses, in the midst of the multitudes, he addresses the disciples, not the multitudes. The word disciple shows up 22 out of 27 times in the first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you go, yeah, okay, 22 out of seven. That's not that big of a deal. I understand that. However, throw an S on the end of disciple, meaning more than one, disciples, the word disciple shows up 208 times in the first four books of the New Testament. And then it shows up the other 15 in the book of Acts. The word Christian doesn't show up until Acts something, and they were called Christians in Antioch. And it was a derogatory term, little, little, little Christ. So, so this morning we have multitudes and we have disciples. And these disciples here are separating themselves from the multitudes as they desire more of Jesus, as they follow Jesus up to the mountain. And Jesus is going to teach from this passage here where we started, and he's going to teach all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, all of chapter 7 in one setting. Because this section doesn't end until we get to the end of chapter 7. This is his longest recorded ser sermon right here, chapters 5, 6, and 7. One commentator believes that this is Jesus' basic introductory message to every place he went. 
And, and that very well could be. Because when you look at what's in here, these are all basic things for those who are his disciples. So if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus, then team, tune in. Allow the words of Jesus to fine-tune you. If you're not, it's not too late to start. Tune in and allow God's word to change your thinking that will ultimately change how you live your lives for Jesus Christ. Because see, the disciples of Jesus' day and the disciples of the early church, they set the world on fire. They did. The title of my Bible study in this section of scriptures, known as the be attitudes and not the do attitudes, is the chain reaction. Maybe you've seen them happen in snowy days, foggy days. The dictionary defines chain reaction as a series of events, each caused by the previous one. And we're going to see as we work this down that this is going to be played out before our eyes seven times as we look at seven characteristics or seven attitudes that make up a disciple's character. And then another B attitude or an attitude in numbers eight and nine will deal with the reaction from the world as you and I live like Jesus wants us to live. So as we live out the first seven, the world is going to react and the eighth and ninth one here. Each one is caused by the previous one. Now, like I said earlier, right when I got done reading, all of these beatitudes are tied together like a chain link fence. You know, picture a chain link fence in your mind, you know, it's all interwoven. You, you can't take one out. This passage will not allow that. Well, I don't like that one, Pastor. I'm sorry, you can't take it out. It has to stay in there. It serves a purpose. So let's climb up the mountain together, team, saying to Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, we're all in. We, we want to be your disciples as we literally surrender our lives to him, saying, no more my way, Jesus. I want it just your way. I want to be one of your disciples. And as we look at how each one of these beatitudes is played out in our lives, we'll come to realize that Jesus is calling us to live just like he does. And as we live that way, or that style of living, it will impact our world to where the world will flip upside down or right side up. So team, we need to kind of get a move on because Jesus is already up there sitting so we need to get up there, and we need to see what he's going to teach us today, and that's where we are in verse 2. Then Jesus opened his mouth and taught us, and taught them. And, and this is what we do here. It's a distinctive of Calvary Chapel. We teach through the Bible. We're going to quit at verse 12 unless the rapture happens today, and then whoever's left, you can start in verse 13 next week. But we teach through it. Wherever we leave off, that's where we start. Because you and I, as, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know what God's word says and not what, you, what, not what I think it says. And the only way to know what God's word says is if we teach through all of it. And here's what he says. And so I don't know if you have to strap on a seatbelt for this, but if you can get past verse 3, you can get past all of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Beatitude number one for disciples that causes this whole chain reaction to take place is critical if you want to finish well. It's critical. The word blessed means happy. So oh so happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word for poor here is like dirt poor. One reduced to begging, one void of wealth, influence, position, or honor. Someone who is helpless or powerless to accomplish anything. The poor in, realize, poor in spirit realize they don't have anything that God wants, needs, or desires. They understand they have nothing absolutely of value or worth to offer to God. Poor in spirit has nothing to do with monetary has everything to do with attitude, mindset, and heart. 
Poor in spirit is available to all who will realize that they don't have anything that God will accept from them to get them into the kingdom of heaven. See, this matches what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, poor in spirit. Because how do we define poor in spirit? Well, I think Paul does a way better job than what I could, so hold your spot here. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, and we're going to allow the Word of God to define what poor in spirit looks like. Because we've already defined what a disciple is and what they do, so now let's figure out what poor in spirit looks like. For the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And see, poor in spirit is definitely part of that foolishness. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. To the intellectual thinker, poor in spirit would be like the dumbest thing you could say. So Jews are requesting a sign. Greeks are seeking after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews' stumbling block and to the Greeks' foolishness. But to those who are called, these are the disciples, those who are poor in spirit, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. For you see your calling brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Queen Elizabeth says she's happy it says not many because if it said none, then they wouldn't get in. But check this out. This is really one I wanted to read. I just wanted to keep it all in context. This is what poor in spirit looks like. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Does that bother you, being called a foolish thing before you came to Jesus? And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Does that bother you before you came to Jesus that he was only looking for the weak thing? And the base things of the world. That would just be like my life if you want to figure out what that looks like. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, God has chosen. And here's why. To bring to nothing the things that are. That's all poor in spirit, team. And here's, and here's why God sets the rules of the game this way. That no flesh should glory in his presence. See, every single person that arrives in heaven was poor in spirit. You were going your way, doing your thing. God called you, and you said yes. And as you stood and came next to the voice of God calling you, you realized you were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And they all know it was by nothing that they possess, those who are poor in spirit, that enter into heaven. They had no spiritual quality that God was looking for. And see, that's why heaven will center on Jesus and what he's done for all of those who are poor in spirit. See, that way no flesh can glory in his presence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, those is, for theirs is present tense as a statement of fact, the kingdom of heaven as you make your way back to Matthew chapter 5. See, those who understand they were beggars, spiritually speaking, will be rewarded that moment they arrived in heaven. But please understand this today. Every disciple that responded to being called when they were poor in spirit, they already have heaven. 
The ticket was purchased when we came to Jesus, poor in spirit, on his terms. He had already paid for it. And when you turned, the ticket was yours. You're just waiting to cash it in and use it. And see, that's why this is present tense statement of fact team. Blessed are those who are stripped of everything, including their wills. Remember, before Jesus, you were in charge of your life. It was your will and nobody else's. You were the master of your ship. But when you turned to him, you left all that behind. And he became the master of the ship. It's no longer not, it's no longer not my will, but Lord, your will be done. That's poor in spirit. They're no longer living for themselves. They no longer belong to themselves. And for this is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you don't take a class on this and go, okay, I got this done. You can't go, okay, poor in spirit, check, got a pastor, and let's move on to the next one. No, you need poor in spirit for the rest of your spiritual life as you walk on this earth. It's critical. Because, see, listen, if I'm not poor in spirit, then what am I? I'm a little good in my spirit, really. Jesus said there's no one good but one, that's God. Poor in spirit is critical in our lives. Tell the person beside you poor in spirit is critical for their lives. Tell the other person the same thing. This is critical stuff here. And see, as poor in spirit chain reacts, it react, a chain reacts to beatitude number two in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. See, when I get a good look at myself, it's going to cause me to mourn. But in the midst of that, they shall be comforted. See, every time we take an honest assessment of ourselves, not in the church age today, because let's face it, in the church age today, we can all look at somebody and go, man, I'm really doing good. But when you take an honest assessment of yourself next to Jesus, Paul says, hey, follow me, I'm following Christ. And when you take an honest assessment of yourself, mourning will come into play. Has to. Now, we can hide it. We can ignore it. We can run from it. But it doesn't change the fact of the matter that the spiritual chain reaction to poor in spirit is mourning. And team, this is present tense as well. So poor in spirit and mourning, it's going to be with me until I see Jesus. And this mourning that's used here, this is, the, this is the deepest sense of mourning that the Greek language has. And it has lots of them. So not only, only poor in spirit and mourning are going to be present, but also reassurance from Jesus himself to comfort me pretty good package. Look how this reads. Blessed are those who present tense mourn, for they shall be future tense comforted. Well, comforted how? Well, listen. For they shall be future tense comforted by an outside source. See, in the Greek language, there's passive verbs and active verbs. Active is me doing the work. Passive is me receiving. This is passive. They're going to be comforted by, an, by something else or someone else. The way this is worded, Jesus has us doing the mourning and he'll do the comforting as we live life according to his words and not ours. And let's face it, he wrote the book. It's his manual. He has the, he's the one that died for us and rose again from the dead. He's the one that's taken us to heaven. He has the right to Guide us into how we should live. Amen? Well, really, not very many people believe that. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, did he have the right to tell them how to live? True or false? Okay, well, when Jesus saves us and he lays it out here and telling us, hey, how to have your best life, here's how it's played out, does he have the right to do that? True or false? It's true. Now, let me ask you this. 
When was the last time you sat with Jesus in a quiet place? And just being in his presence, without even a word spoken, brought about a deep sense of mourning of soul as you recognized the poverty of spirit you have and that you have nothing that he desires. I don't know, only you can answer that. The only thing Jesus desires of me is me. I don't have anything. And as you waited, you received a solid reassurance of comfort from the one who suffered all. And this is why David, the man after God's own heart, would say, Lord, search me and try me and see me in this, if there be any wicked way in me. And then he would listen. David knew he was poor in spirit. He just wanted to make sure he wasn't packing something else with him. Team, if you've lost sight of this, you need a spiritual timeout to get a fresh perspective of who Jesus is and who you're not in these last days we're living in. Because in these last days we're living in, perilous times are going to come upon the church where people are going to say, hey, it's all about you and you need to love yourself and, you know, just get what you can because, hey, you're going to heaven and you might as well take as much with you as you want. Man, that is bogus and garbage. doesn't match the scriptures. Well, it does. God warns us about it in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 about what it's going to be like in the last days where these false teachers are going to be screaming these things and professing these things and lukewarm believers or unbelievers or whatever are going to follow them. The problem is they have a form of godliness, but they have no power. Jesus says, if you being evil know how to, team, we're evil. If Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if he says you're evil, you're evil. I'm evil. We're all evil. Well, no, then you're, you're hurting my inner child. Listen, go stand next to God and find out how evil you are. And, and this really bothers the, the kind of the self-righteous Christian today. But those are Jesus' words. You can't erase that. Eternity is at stake here. Get close to God and allow him to point out your poor in spirit state and you'll find out just how evil you are. This Greek word for mourning here is what Jesus is going to wipe away. We see it in Revelation 21.4. We saw it. You know, pain and death and mourning. All of those things are going to be wiped away. But for today, team, if we're staying in the game and being used and finishing well, then beatitude number two has to be connected to, be, to attitude number one. And it is a critical way of thinking and living for all of Jesus' disciples. Next up on this chain reaction for finishing well is in verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what is meek? You know, it's not exactly a word we toss around these days. So what is it? Pastor Chuck would define meek as me-ick. Get it? It's not too complicated. The Greek dictionary defines meek as that character of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. In other words, whatever comes your way, you just accept it from God because you know he's in charge. No complaining, no grumbling against him. In the Old Testament, the meek are those who, holy, who, those who wholly rely on God rather than their own strength to defend them against injustice. Thus, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, that he is using them to purify his elect, and that he will deliver his elect in his time. That's what the Greek dictionary says. Meekness is the opposite of self-assertedness. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The meek person is not occupied with themselves at all. Again, this is right out of the Greek dictionary. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. You know, Moses, it took Moses 40 years to figure out that God was not interested in his earthly strength to deliver the Egyptians or the Israelites from, from Egypt. 
Blessed are the meek. That is what disciples of Jesus are. Not concerned with the earthly, but resting in that relationship with Jesus, allowing the Holy Ghost to shape and mold them and fight their battles, for they shall, future tense, as a statement of fact, inherit the earth. I hope you've noticed the progression here so far. It has nothing to do with me, and it has nothing to do with you. These are attitudes that God does. I mean, once Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, and you sit with him, and he points that out, the chain reaction to that is mourning, to where it's like, okay, I, I, I ain't going to do any of this. I'm going to meek. Yeah, I got it. Well, it's still not about me. But then there's the promises on the other side of each quality or character or attitude of life for disciple. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted, and they shall inherit the earth. All future promises that are given. But God's going to do that. We, we need all of that team if we're going to run in such a way as to obtain the price today. But again, we don't, you can't take a class on this. You can't read a book. No, you have to surrender. See, this is who the Holy Ghost is shaping us to be on Jesus' team and its disciples. He does that work. This is how real life is played out in the game called life. This is godly life that will impact the world around you. And this is how the early disciples lived. And out of those things, verse 6 happens. It, it, it naturally, supernaturally takes place. Blessed are those who present tense all the time, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember Jesus was hungry, fasted 40 days and was hungry? This is that word here. And as they hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, they, they shall be filled. So as I get a true picture of myself and a true picture of God, what should happen within me? Well, it's going to cause me to hunger and thirst for more, more righteousness, more of Jesus. As I begin to see the poor state in the spiritual realm that I am, and I'm mourning over that, and I'm realizing that I don't have what it takes to make it in God's world, it causes me to hunger and thirst for the things of God. You see, righteousness cannot be achieved in your own strength. It is a right standing before God that Jesus has done for us. God has imputed unto us righteousness. And he did that the moment we believed in Jesus. You, no one can improve Jesus' righteousness. Impossible. And the natural, supernatural result of seeking after God in my life is that I am going to be filled. But not just full, but filled to the brim. This word is used for like stuff and cattle, you know, to where they're so full, you're going to now take them to the, to the stockyards, the butcher shop. Now, please understand, as you look at the verb tenses here, and this was like my 2.30 in the morning, rewrite this section. As you're doing the action of hungering and thirsting after the things of God, that's our part. This is all active voice, which means you and I are, are doing the work here. We're hungering and we are thirsting after the things of God. And in response to your, you hungering and thirsting, the way this is worded is, you will receive this fullness here because for they shall be filled as passive voice. Again, meaning you're going to receive something that's coming from an outside source. And obviously it's the Holy Spirit or God himself or Jesus or the Father. But see, you had to be poor in spirit to get to this place of hungering and thirsting. And this is why too many Christians today drive through life with their tanks sucking the scum off the bottom of the gas tank because they don't want to be poor in spirit. They just want to be filled. No, no, it doesn't work that way. You can't skip the first three to get the fourth one. I mean, this is where the popular, positive, happy-go-lucky preachers today, they miss it. 
Remember, this is all a chain reaction that started with, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Oh, how, and then, then that'll cause you to be mourned. And then you'll realize, I, I, I want to be meek, stay meek. But if that never happens in a person's life, if I never realize my own depravity, then I am never going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not. I may act like I do or say that I do, but I'm not, not the way God wants it. And if I never hunger and thirst for righteousness, then the Holy Ghost is never going to fill me to the full. That's why poor in spirit is critical. It causes all these other things to cut loose. It's a chain reaction. You know, poor in spirit's the first car. Boom. The second car is mourning. Boom. Meek is the third one. Boom. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is the fifth one. But poor in spirit's where it starts. See, this is why chain reaction is such a perfect title for this section of Scripture. And this is why poor in spirit is not just what I am when I first turned to Jesus. No, I need poor in spirit in my life now 36 years later. I need more of poor in spirit in my life now 36 years later, not less. And this is where too many people miss it. Well, yeah, I've done the poor in spirit thing. Now I'm just going to go live my life. No, it doesn't work that way. You don't start with poor in spirit and then check that one off as completed and just move on to the next one. It doesn't work that way. You stay poor in spirit. That's what keeps you useful to the Spirit of God, and that's what keeps you hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I mean, this may be like a super theological Bible study, but this is critical for our lives, team. It's critical. And as we hunger and thirst after righteousness, this is what keeps a steady flow of rivers of living water flowing out of our lives. But it started and ends with poor in spirit. You see, it's impossible to be filled unless I have first been emptied. Can we say that together? It's impossible to be filled unless I have first been emptied. It's impossible to be filled unless I have first been emptied. The first three beatitudes here, these first three attitudes are the empty in process. Which then creates in me a hunger and a thirst because I got this vacuum in my life. And it creates this hungering and thirsting for righteousness and then God does the filling. And as that filling now flows into my life and out of my life, the rest of the Beatitudes listed here, they're just going to supernaturally, naturally flow out of our lives. You see, the, the chain reaction to realizing your own spiritual self and then being filled and touched by God, when that takes place in your life, the automatic reaction is, oh, i got to do the same for others. Look at verse 7. That's what happens. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Are you merciful? I don't know. Only you know that. I know this. Christians have become pretty good at pronouncing judgment these days. They post it on Facebook. It's like, ay, ay, ay. Um, we're supposed to offer mercy, not judgment. Justice. Mercy is not giving someone something they deserve. You know, somebody punches you. Mercy is I'm not going to give it back to you. You deserve it, but I'm not going to give it back to you. Justice is getting what we deserve. Man, I'm going to get justice for you, man. You're going to jail. Mercy flows out of hearts that are touched by the grace and mercy of God. But that always points me all the way back to the poor in spirit. And then it, works, and then it just trickles all the way down. Oh, how happy are the merciful, for they shall, future tense, as a simple statement of fact, obtain mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where all disciples want to live. 
If, if you're still not convinced, you can cheat and read ahead. James writes about it, James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Are you merciful? I hope so. I don't want to get to heaven and, I, and, and it's like, hey, no mercy, brother. You didn't show it. Remember that passage that I had my boy James write? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. I don't even want to be in that line. I know I'm going to get in because I get in by the blood of the Lamb, but I don't want to be in that line. If you and I have experienced the mercy of God, then we should show it to others. We should. It's critical. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And where did this pure in heart thing start? Back in verse 3 back when God first got a hold of my heart and I realized I was poor in spirit. God was doing all the work here, which brought about mourning, which caused me to go, oh yeah, me, ick, which then caused me to hunger and thirst. And God filled me. And he fills me. And as he fills me an empty vessel, it drives the gunk out of my life. And he fills me and it washes more away. And it's just a continual process till we see Jesus face to face. Pure is also clean, clean in thoughts and actions, singly devoted to Jesus and no other. Oh, how happy are the pure in heart with this incredible promise of future tense, simple statement of fact, for they shall see God. Wow. Doesn't get any better than that. Definitely in heaven we're going to see him, all those who are saved by grace through faith, but also throughout the day in the Spirit. Oh, he's ever-present. I mean, remember where we started, disciples? Deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow who? Follow Jesus. How, how am I supposed to follow him if I can't see him? Oh, no, he's there. He'll speak to you. You'll see him. Maybe not in person, but you'll sense his presence. But you got to go back to poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And a peacemaker is more than someone who stops a quarrel. It's more than overcoming evil with good. A peacemaker is a person who brings good into people's lives. He seeks to build or she seeks to build bridges towards others so that they can then minister to them. I mean, after all, God initiated peace with man. Peacemakers are going to do the same, seeking to initiate peace with them for the sole basis of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And as disciples live this way, team, future tense with others giving you the label because it's going to come from outside, they're going to start calling you sons of God. Oh, man, here comes one of those sons of God. Hey, we like you. You bring out the good in us, the best in us. We like you. It's really not a bad title to possess. But please know this. Not everyone in this world is going to like that title, Son of God. As people live like Jesus lived, well, we know what they did to Jesus. They crucified him. They called him a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They called him names. Well, I know, Pastor, that's why I drink wine, because Jesus did. No, he didn't. If he did, I can guarantee you he did not get buzzed, not even in the slightest. Well, you just said they called him a wine-bibber. Yeah, the, his enemies did. Are you everything your enemy calls you? No. One from Jesus' inner circle sold him out. Oh, so happy, verse 10, are those who are persecuted. Are you happy about it? I hope so. Oh, so happy are those who are persecuted. Please notice, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get no credit if you're accused of doing something wrong at work. You get no credit for that if you did something wrong. I get no credit if I'm being stupid. No, no, no. It says, for righteousness' sake. Oh, so happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for representing Jesus to the people, for living out these seven character attitude traits of a disciple... For theirs is present tense, the kingdom of heaven. I like that. But you've got to live them out first for the world to take notice. 
Please understand that when the world takes shots at you, they are taking shots at Jesus. Please, don't ever take it personal. See, if you take it personal when someone's taking a shot at you for being a, 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 a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're no, longer, you're no longer being poor in spirit or meek or hungering after anything. The only thing you're hungering after now is blood. Man, I can't believe they didn't hear what they said. Hey, listen, back up, take a breath, keep your heart right. God, you answer that. I'm not going to, and watch God crush them. He will. But if your heart changes, he won't. If you step into it, he won't. You step out of it, stay out of it, keep your heart right, and watch what God will do. He, it will make you sorry that you let God take your place. Nobody messes with God, God's kids and gets away with it. When Saul was persecuting and killing Christians, Jesus doesn't show up and say, hey, buddy boy, quit killing my kids. No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh, how happy from God's economy when you take shots for your Jesus, just like he did. Verse 11, in case you missed it the first time. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, not truthfully, for my sake. Again, it's not for, for me being dumb, stupid, or any of those things I could do in my flesh. No, it's for living for Jesus' sake. Oh, so happy are you when? Please take notice of that. It doesn't say if. Oh, so happy are you if you're persecuted? No, it doesn't say that. It says when. Okay, we got that? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Blessed are you when they revile. When, not if. True disciples today are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not maybe, not if, that's not what this says here. Blessed are you when they. Well, you know, pastor, everyone likes me. <laughs> oh, boy, you got me there until I open my Bible. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And as I realized, Paul's like months, a couple months away from being beheaded for his witness of Jesus Christ. And the, and the Lord God wants Paul to write one more book. And so Paul writes 2 Timothy, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And this is what Paul writes out of 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all. What's all? All means, and, all, and that's all it means, right? So everyone. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So that's either, either that is not true, God's word, or your witness to all those around you that like you is not true. You have to decide. As we live our lives the way Jesus lives, the world doesn't have anything in common with us at that point. You and I, we need to remember, light and darkness have nothing in common. They don't. We need to let our lights shine everywhere we go. But I'll tell you what, there's, some people respond to that and say, hey, why are you this way? And you're going to tell them, well, look, it's not me. I'm poor in spirit, man. I, I was a scumbag when Jesus saved me. He's doing that in me. What? You know, then you just freak them out. But then you get to share the gospel with them. But there's others in the world because of the sin that they are into or maybe your own family. And they'll attack you. And it can be without even a word spoken. But you know, we have to use words, otherwise no one will hear the gospel. From my recent experiences of life, just letting my light shine without words spoken makes the darkness hostile. Using words can make those in darkness hostile as well. So just remember, don't ever take it personal. It is never about you, ever. Jesus ends this section with exactly the right heart attitude. When you are persecuted, reviled, even in false words spoken against you for Jesus' sake, verse 12 teaches us how to react. But listen, before you, look, you're, some of you are already reading ahead. Look, before we read, let's have a little math lesson. 
Count up how many words Jesus uses on this topic of persecution, okay? There's three verses there. He'll bring this topic up again many more times before he hits the cross. But for now, I'll beat you to it because I already cheated. There's 59 words. There are 10 to 14 words for each of the other Beatitudes, but for this one single Beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted ones, 59 words, team. I mean, that teaches something. You see, Jesus knows what living like a, uh, Jesus knows what living like a disciple will produce in the lukewarm church and amongst the ungodly. He knows. That's why he uses 59 words here to tell us. Hey, hey, will you fall over dead when the world is nice to you? Just fall over dead. Oh, I can't believe. Look, if you'll fall over dead when the world is nice to you, that way you'll never be shocked when they're not. You should expect it. Oh, they're the world. They're, they're not going to be nice to me. Yep, yep, prove that one. Don't ever be shocked when they're not nice. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For what? When they persecute you. And here's why. For great is your reward in heaven. Dang, man, I'm down on that. Anybody want some rewards in heaven when people say bad words about you if we're living right? Well, I didn't even have to pick up a shovel and build something in the Philippines or nothing. <laughs> and here's why this is the same throughout the entire age. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the devil's same plan. He hasn't changed. He's come to rob, kill, steal, and destroy. And he's the massive liar. Jesus says when he speaks, he speaks of his own resources. So persecuted for living like Jesus would and for speaking like Jesus would, there's rewards for that. Remember, it's not if you're persecuted as a disciple, it's when. We just looked at eight with one repeated character trait or attitude of a disciple or instruction point whatever you want to call it, theological point, that Jesus gives us to be oh-blessed, oh-so-happy people. Eight of them. One repeated. We saw in this entire chain reaction that each one of them contained a present blessing and a future blessing promised. It's now up to you to allow this chain reaction to take place in your own life. I can't do it for you. If I could, I would. But team, you can't skip the first one. People who are gifted and talented and, and think they have good qualities in their, in their life, they have a hard time with the first one. But sinners, like me, no problem. I got this one. But you can't skip the first one and go to number two and three and four. No, you've got to start with the first one here. You've got to start with poor in spirit. See, I want to live in a place of oh so happy is the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven believing God for great things. It's a great place to be if you'll just travel there. Not only entrance into heaven but rewards in heaven as well. But you got to travel here yourself. I can teach it. I can point it out. I can look at different things but you have to put it into practice. You got to find that time out place to sit before Jesus and allow him to show you just how poor in spirit you are if you don't know yourself. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives. And Lord, we know that